If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Joshua chapter 3. We're going to be reading the, the whole chapter, the story of crossing the Jordan. So I will read that. You can follow along on the screen behind me or in your Bibles this morning. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from the place, from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that, you, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and he will without fail <clears throat> drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout, this, throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. So this year... 2017 is a significant year in, in Christian literature, if you will. Uh, it marks the 15th anniversary of a book that was written that has become one of the best-selling Christian books of all time. Uh, you've surely heard of it uh, if you've been in uh, Christian circles long enough. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. And The Purpose Driven Life was released in 2002. It sold over 30 million copies and was on the New York Times bestseller list for almost two full years. Uh, it was wildly popular, despite whether you personally liked the book uh, or not, 
there was something about it that, that appealed to people and that drew people in and made them uh, want to read this book. And uh, five years ago, on the 10th anniversary of this book's release, someone asked the question, why? What is it about this book that struck a chord with people? And they asked that question to a gentleman named Michael Cromarty, the VP of Ethics and Public Policy in Washington, D.C. And here's what he said. He said, in a world where so many feel their lives are filled with meaninglessness, insignificance, anime, and uncertainty, his message that every person's work and life has unique value struck a chord. In other words, people want to know that their lives have purpose, that, that they're part of something greater than themselves, something that is important, something that has value. And there's nothing really more deflating and even depressing than living without a sense of purpose, feeling like everything's just meaningless and insignificant and, and uncertain. There's, there's nothing worse than kind of just wandering aimlessly, feeling like we're, we're just marking time until we leave this earth. But here's the thing. God doesn't save us for that. He doesn't save us just to mark time. He doesn't save us just to gather every Sunday and, and, and play church. God saves us to a life of purpose. A purpose that gives more meaning to life, more value to life, more satisfaction to life than anything else that we could pursue. And that purpose, that grand purpose of God, is to glorify His name in the earth through the advancement of the gospel. Nothing is more exciting than selling out to this mission, to this purpose in life. You know, as, as I was preparing this message, I thought of a gentleman who used to attend our, our first service named Harvey Hoekstra. Harvey is in his mid-90s now, and many of you know who he is, but at a young age, he and his wife made a commitment, a commitment to live on mission for God, to dedicate their whole lives for, to this purpose of seeing the gospel advance. And, and God called them to Africa, and he spent like 30 years there spreading the gospel, and, and later wrote a book about all the great things that they had seen God do while they were there. Stories of conversions and healings and miraculous deliverance. Stories that show that he was about or, and, and was a part of a, a great move of God. And as I thought about that, it, it got me thinking about my own life. And what stories will I have to tell, God willing, if I live as long as, as Harvey? I mean, I may not have stories about Africa and invading tribes and lions and things like that, but will I also have stories about great deliverance of God that I've seen take place, about captives set free, the sick healed, God's kingdom advancing by His Spirit? Will I be able to say I was on the front lines of spiritual warfare, completely engaged in God's mission of advancing the gospel? Because this is what the Lord saves us for. It's what He calls us to. And I have to be honest this morning, I forget that. Sometimes I forget why I'm here. Sometimes I forget what this whole church thing is about. I forget that God has called me to something far greater than myself, a purpose that has implications that go beyond this life. And I'll tell you what happens. Here's what happens. is When I forget what God has called me to, 
When I forget the, the, the purpose to which he's even called us as a, as a community, I start looking for something else to live for. I start living for greater success at, at work, and how can I get that next promotion, or, or you know, how can I make my life more comfortable, or some worldly goal that I'm trying to attain, and in the end, it always lets me down. It always leaves me feeling empty and, quite frankly, unhappy, because I know deep down inside that there's more to this life than just living for this life. God has called us to something greater, to have a purpose and a passion that goes beyond just what we pursue in the here and now. And you say, well, what does this have to do with Joshua chapter 3? What does this have to do with the text that we just read? Nothing. I just wanted to get that off my chest. And I feel better now. I'm kidding. It has everything to do with Joshua chapter 3. The crossing of the Jordan is a turning point for the nation of Israel. It is where they go from living without purpose to living on purpose. The Bible says for the 40 years preceding this event, the Israelites, we were told, were wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. They've lost their sense of purpose and identity as a community. They've they've stopped living by faith, stopped obeying uh, the word of God, and as a result, the The generation that crossed the Red Sea would never actually realize the very purpose for which God saved them. They they really were a people without purpose. And and notice I said a, a people without purpose, not a person without purpose. See, in Western culture, we tend to think of purpose just on individual terms, don't we? What? What's God's purpose for me? What's my purpose? What's my destiny? And we forget that God calls his people to a purpose. He gifts us individually and places us in community and commissions the community to go and take the land by spreading the good news of the gospel and making disciples. And so the nation of Israel, since the Red Sea crossing and up to this point, was a community that had lost this sense of purpose. They experienced God's deliverance. They came to realize what he saved them from at the Red Sea, but had never come to realize what he saved them for. And that is the big difference between the Red Sea crossing and the Jordan crossing this morning. If you want to know what the difference is, because there's a lot of parallels, but the key difference is, first, they're both part of God's saving work. They're pictures of salvation. Both of them are. But the Red Sea's focus is more on what God saves us from, while the Jordan is about what he saves us to. It is about what is before us, possessing the land at the Red Sea. The Israelites are fleeing an army, and they're leaving a land deliverance at the Jordan. They are the army, and they're entering the land to take it. It's about possession of the promise. And this is such an important thing to remember because what it means is that God's saving work encompasses both. God's saving work encompasses uh, saving us and delivering us from the enemy, but also giving a land to us that we must go and possess. It is ours in him. It is promised to us, but yet we are still called to go and engage the enemy and possess the land. And we don't want to be like that generation of Israelites who wandered between the Red Sea and the Jordan, celebrating because we're not who we were, right? We're not in Egypt anymore. 
but failing to move forward and possess what is ahead of us. And I'll tell you, I really believe this. Churches that aren't rallied around and committed to mission and moving forward in this sense will, like the Israelites, wander aimlessly in the wilderness until they eventually die out. And, and that's not a present diagnosis of where we are right now uh, at Infusion. I mean, there's areas where we're reaching out, we're serving people and, and advancing God's kingdom, but I do believe there's a word of caution uh, for us here and really for, for all churches that we are called to live with a mission and with a purpose before us. You know, as, as a body, we get a lot of compliments when it comes to areas that we're strong uh, as a church, areas like hospitality and acceptance and community and worship. We know uh, these are areas that, that, that we're excelling, but you know what? We also know that, that we are weakest when it comes to things like being mobilized for evangelism and, and getting out beyond the, 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 the walls of our church to share the gospel in word and deed. And we know this as, as, as leaders. This is an area we need growth, that God is encouraging us and stretching us to grow. And with that in mind, I, I believe, and I don't say this lightly, I really believe there is prophetic significance to the book of Joshua as it relates to where we are right now as a church. There's perhaps no other book in the Bible that encourages the people of God to unite in faith around the purpose of God to go and take the land like Joshua. And listen, not take the land by swords and spears and fighting a, a, a physical enemy, but by engaging the enemy in spiritual warfare to advance God's kingdom of grace. This series really is for us. And the good news this morning is that the Jordan is a really good starting point for any community that wants to commit themselves to living on mission that wants to be encouraged to move forward in living with the purposes of God at heart. Because it is at the Jordan that God prepares his people for what lies ahead. God promises them the land, but they can't just go rush in and take it. They can't just go cross the Jordan on their own and start, you know, defeating all the enemies. They have to understand a few things about how God works and how victory actually happens. And this is what God teaches his people at the Jordan. There are indispensable lessons taught at the Jordan and, and a pattern for how God is, is going to work in the coming chapters that they have to get. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. What is it that we're taught at the Jordan that really prepares us to go and possess the land that God has promised? We're going to look at two things, two keys to kingdom advancement that are taught at the Jordan. Two keys to kingdom advancement. If we're going to do this and live on mission and successfully advance God's kingdom, we must do these two things first. We must have re resolute confidence in God's word. This is a pattern that we see throughout the book of Joshua that is set in place here at the Jordan. That God speaks to Joshua Joshua speaks to the people, and then the people are faced with the decision of whether or not they're going to obey. And when they obey, they have success and victory over the enemy, and when they rebel, they, they reap the consequences, as we see it at Ai and, and Gibeon. And so God's word is delivered to his servant and then to the people through his servant. But here's the thing, up until this point, that servant has been Moses. Moses is the one who hears from God and speaks the word of God to the people. 
And so there's this huge transition of leadership that is taking place here at the Jordan. If the people are going to live by God's word, then they have to trust the one through whom God's word is being spoken. And so here's what God says he's going to do for Joshua at the Jordan. He says this, he says, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. In other words, after the people experience what I'm going to do right here, they're going to have full confidence that just as I was with Moses speaking through him, now I am with you speaking through you. That they can trust what you say when you speak. And that's why it's significant in verse 9 when Joshua says this. He says, come and hear, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is the first time he gives a direct prophecy to the people, a prophetic guidance from God explicitly. It's the first, thus saith the Lord moment for Joshua. So the question is, are they going to listen? This is a big deal. And he goes on to give them instruction on how this whole thing's going to happen. Consecrate yourselves. Move away from the ark. And then he calls the ark to go down into the waters. Think about that for a second. He tells the priests, to take the Ark of the Covenant and go march into the river with it. Think about what's at stake in that. I mean, what if Joshua is not speaking for God? What if he's a fraud? He just told them to take their most prized possession where the very presence of God dwells and to go march down into a raging river with it. If this fails... The priests are all swept away. The ark of God is swept away. The presence of God is gone. It's really risky from their perspective. It's an amazing act of faith for them to obey what Joshua says, but they do. They have resolute confidence in God's word, even when it seems to go against human intuition and what they might think is the right thing to do, they obey. And you know what? God performs what he says he's going to perform. He brings them across on dry land. And so through this, the Israelites are learning something about God. They're learning, wow, God really does speak through Joshua. And you know what? When God speaks, we should listen because miraculous things happen. There, there is power in obeying the word of God. And I want you to think about how important this truth is going to be for them moving forward. This confidence in God's word when it's spoken through Joshua. Think about when they get to Jericho and the word of God comes forth and says, here's the key to victory. Go march around the city blowing trumpets. They're going to need to have confidence in what God says. Even when it may not make sense in their own understanding. And so this is how God works. God speaks to his people through his word and his people obey and God gives them success. And I'll tell you what, you know, this is really the very essence of what faith is. Faith is hearing and believing God's word enough to act on it. And unbelief is the opposite. It is not obeying God's word because we really don't believe it. And it's exactly why that generation of Israelites who crossed the Red Sea could not cross the Jordan. In fact, as soon as they cross over the Jordan, Joshua reminds them of this. He says this in Joshua 5, 6. He says, The people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war, came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. They didn't believe when Moses spoke that God was speaking, not enough to listen. So they were not fit 
to cross the Jordan. And so the question this morning is, what about us? What, what, what about you this morning? Do you have resolute confidence in God's Word? Do you, do you trust His Word enough to obey it even when your human intuition tells you to do something else? Even when circumstances seem to indicate that God's Word might be counterproductive to where you are right now? Do, do you hold fast to His promises even when you don't see any possible way that His promises could come to pass? Is it the highest authority in your life? Do we know God's Word? Are, are, are you storing it in your heart, not just to store information, but to actually live by it, allow it to direct you? Allow it to correct your course when you're headed the wrong direction. As we talked about in James, are we not just hearers, but are we being doers of God's Word? Because believing in the power of God's Word enough to obey it is a huge part of being successful in mission. As a community as well, when we esteem God's Word this way, because here's what it means. It means that we're not ultimately trusting in our own intuition or our own strategies or our own methods but we find our confidence in what the Lord says and by staying close to what He says. And so the first key to kingdom success is having resolute confidence in God's Word. And the second key that we see given this morning that we must possess is knowing that God goes before us in victory. If we're going to be successful in possessing the land, we must know and have confidence that God goes before us in victory. It's another pattern that we see throughout the book of Joshua, that God is not a God who rides behind his army. You know, the common thing for kings in this day was to stay in the back and send the army forward to go get victory, protect all the prized possessions in the rear. But God doesn't work this way. What we see throughout Joshua is that God goes before his people and he is the principal actor in all of the battles that they face. And this is what we see set in place at the Jordan. The people are going to walk away from the Jordan understanding this. Because when we understand this, here's, here's the truth that really gets drilled down into our hearts when we understand God goes before us. It means that when we enter the land, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from a place of victory. God goes before us to defeat the enemy. Moses felt that this was incredibly important for the people to understand. Just before he dies, he hammers this home to the Israelites. In Deuteronomy 31.3, he says this, The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. God goes before and fights, but we move in and dispossess. We follow him in from a place of victory to lay hold of that which God has given us. A few verses later, Moses says essentially the same thing. He says, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And so Moses is telling the Israelites, you don't have to be afraid because you have a God who goes before his people and fights on their behalf. And at the Jordan, we see this affirmed so obviously. Joshua and the community, they're standing at this raging river and he doesn't say, okay, guys, just start walking across and once we see that it's safe, 
then we'll bring the ark over behind you to make sure that everything gets over, gets over safely. No. We see the ark is the first thing. The priest carrying the ark that goes down into the waters of the Jordan. And the waters separate, allowing the people to pass on dry ground. So in the end, the people can't take any credit for this, can they? It's all God. He gets the glory. And they're learning, wow, the key to victory is just being completely dependent on God. They can move forward confidently knowing, wow, God goes before us. And as I said before, this, is, this picture gets so much, so much more rich when we remember that this is a picture of salvation. The Jordan is a picture of God's delivering, saving work of His people. Providing a way where there is no way for them to cross over from death to life. And the waters of the Jordan and, and the Red Sea story as well, really, are a picture of God's judgment. They are symbolic of the judgment of God. Remember the story of the Red Sea when the Israelites all pass through on dry ground? What happens when the Egyptians try to rush in and pass, right? The waters come crashing in, enveloping the enemies of, of God, and it is a picture of the judgment of, of God. And so at the Jordan, the people must pass over into the promised land, but to do so, they have to cross this ri river signifying the judgment of God, and it is a prophetic picture that points forward to Christ, to what Christ would do for his people. And it's a prophetic picture that gets played out in even greater clarity when Jesus begins his earthly ministry. When Jesus starts his earthly ministry, this is interesting, what is the very first thing he does? Where does he go? He goes to the Jordan. And many commentators believe to this exact spot opposite of Jericho, where he sees John the Baptist baptizing in the Jordan River, and Jesus goes and descends down into the Jordan River. And he doesn't say, John, I'm here to baptize you. Let's get this going. No, he says, you baptize me. To everyone's surprise and astonishment. Baptisms for sinners. What is Jesus doing getting baptized? But John takes Christ and plunges him down into the waters of the Jordan signifying the very purpose for which Jesus came. Jesus is declaring from the outset of his ministry why he came to earth, that he might be submerged in the judgment of God, taking on death on our behalf, that we might cross over from death to life. It is a beautiful picture of his work on the cross. Jesus comes and rolls back the judgment of God for his people that they might cross over. And I'll tell you, it's interesting because when we remember that and we see this prophetic picture, it gives our story so much more meaning. There's a detail that seems so odd and even insignificant that gets so much meaning when we see the prophetic nature of this story. Look at verse 16 and what it says. It says, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam. That's an interesting detail. We've all seen pictures of the Jordan crossing and the, ri the rivers standing like right next to the people as they're crossing. That's not what happened. It, it, this city called Adam was 30 miles upstream. Very far away, the text says, but if you look at it, 30 miles away, the waters are driven upstream. 
And so what's so significant about this city called Adam? Absolutely nothing from a physical standpoint. It's nowhere else mentioned in the Bible. It's only on a few ancient maps. It has no commercial significance or geopolitical significance. The only, the only purpose this could serve our story is a prophetic one. That what God is showing is that he not just holds back the waters of his judgment, but he drives it back all the way to Adam. It is the work of Christ. Reversing the judgment of God, driving it back right to where it started. With Adam himself. Christ reverses the effects of the fall, past, present, and future. It is an amazing miracle. And so the Jordan gives us this powerful picture of salvation that God brings to his people by going before them. And I want to ask you this question. If God is willing to go to such great lengths to overcome the great enemy of sin and, and death, then will he not also give us victory over the lesser enemies that we face? You see, the cross does for us what the Jordan was meant to do for the Israelites. It was meant to give them confidence in their victory over the enemy. It was meant to give them confidence to move forward and possess the land. Listen to what Joshua says about how this whole Jordan experience is meant to impact the people. He says this, he says, Here, meaning at the Jordan, is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Meaning God's great work of deliverance and salvation at the Jordan making a way where there is no way, was meant to show them that he would stop at nothing to bring them into the land that he had given them. If he was willing to change the course of nature and drive back this huge, raging river, then no obstacle would be too great. No enemy could be too strong. God goes before his people in victory. The, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites wouldn't stand a chance. And so the Jordan was a confidence builder for the people of God. Not, not confidence in themselves, but confidence in the Lord God who goes before them. And God's victory and our salvation should do the same thing. It should motivate us and give us confidence to go and take the land. How can we lose when we have a God who secures victory on our behalf? And so this morning, for those of us who are Christians, the people of God... We followed him across the Jordan from death to life. And so the next question is, will we follow him in to possess the land? Will we follow King Jesus on his great mission of spreading the gospel and making disciples of all nations? Will we allow that to become our driving purpose and passion do we trust and have a resolute confidence in God's word and, and enough confidence that God has gone before us to bring us victory, to move forward with him, knowing that it's a mission that cannot fail? So what would, what would this mean for us? What, what does it mean practically for any community that says, yes, I want to do that. I want this to be uh, my purpose and we want this to be our, our purpose about God's business of advancing his kingdom. Well, it means this. It means shifting our focus outward. H having an outward 
focus as a people because taking the land, taking the land is about going out, not staying in, right? Taking the land is about going out, not staying in. There's nothing wrong with with looking inward at the needs of our own community and we can't neglect that. But to take the land, we must be looking outside these walls at ways to share the gospel in word and deed with those around us, individually and corporately. Getting out to share the love of Jesus with others. Getting to know our co-workers and our neighbors. Have them over for dinner. Talk to them about the Lord. Again, this comes back to having confidence in His Word. Confidence that He's gone before us in victory. Do we believe in the power of the gospel enough to share it? Do we believe that God has gone before us and prepared hearts to hear just that message? Do we believe it enough to live by it and act on it? Corporately, we want to have this focus as well. Our small groups need to have this focus. You know, that's why myself and the other elders are so excited about a conference that's coming up in January. And you guys are going to hear more about it. But the whole point of this conference and the whole church is invited to attend is, is teaching small groups to have a missional focus, to be outward focused. It's something that we, we desperately need to take the land. And I would invite you to be a part of that. When we start announcing it, sign up and let's learn together what it means to live on mission for God, to reach out to our communities, to be sensitive to what's going on, not just inside the walls, but outside. It's not that we're not doing this at all, but it's something that we know we need to grow in. You know, it's one of the reasons for the prayer for the nations. You know, this, this goes beyond just our local community, doesn't it? It's a concept that, that we can expand to a global scale. We, we, we do the prayers of the nations and we bring in a, a missionary from Macedonia to testify because we realize this is something God is calling our church to. Global advancement of the gospel to places where Christ has not been named is a huge part of what it means to go and possess the land. There are unreached people groups who have never heard the name of Jesus. Who has the mantle to reach them? The church. And this is something that we, we, we long to see happen. I think God has planted that seed within us and we, we need to water it. You know, that's, I'm, I'm excited for couples like uh, Kathleen and Dave Beckyu who have experience in this, in, in this area and in, in global outreach and, and their crowded houses, he said, is going to have a, an emphasis on God's heart for the nations. And so if this is moving you at all, if this is resonating at all, I would, I would challenge you, talk to them about their crowded house. Find out about how you can be involved. Let it, let it stir your heart even more for God's heart for the nations. Ask them for ways you can be involved. It may not mean going overseas, but there's various ways that we can be involved in God's global purpose to send the gospel to the nations. It's about turning our focus outward together collectively as a body. Because God does lead us in victory. When it comes to the spread of his gospel, he leads us in victory. I want to share this verse from the Apostle Paul to encourage us this morning as we get ready to close. It may, it may be my favorite verse in the Bible now. It's just beautiful because it shows his confidence in the victory of Jesus when he lives on mission. This is what he says. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. 
and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. I love that. Christ leads us, doesn't go behind us. He leads us in triumphal procession, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Him, the gospel, everywhere. And so this morning, let's do that. Let's follow Christ in His triumphal procession this morning, knowing that He's a God who brings His people victory. Let's not be like the generation of Israelites who wander aimlessly and die out in the wilderness, never realizing the very purpose for which God saved them. Let's live with that sense of mission and passion of bringing glory to God and spreading the glory of God in our communities, in our families, in our workplaces, and in the world. Because Christ has defeated the enemy at the cross. He has given us the land, but we must go and possess it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.